Welcome to episode 24 of May the Record Reflect. On today's episode... Accept the fact you can lose. If this is about your ego, you shouldn't be doing it. If this is about, you know, I got to, it's a, I got to have a win, don't do it. This isn't about winning and losing. This isn't about you. This is about doing your job, having a strategy, executing on the strategy, throwing the meat out and see if they go for it. And it's been very successful for me. When I say own the courtroom, I mean the confidence to accept the fact you can lose. I mean, most of the lawyers I go up against are frantic to not lose, frantic. And as a result, it's very easy to distract them, to get them off their game. My point is this, if you, like people that write out their opening and closing statements, you gotta gotta become the case. You gotta know the case well enough. You may make a couple notes, but anybody that reads or memorizes a closing or opening statement doesn't know the case. They're not the case. You got to become the case. That was Dick Harpootlian, and this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and with me today is defense attorney Dick Harpootlian. Unless you're still hunkered down in your COVID bunker, you've undoubtedly heard about a series of criminal and civil cases coming out of South Carolina involving a man named Alex Murdoch. Murdoch came to national prominence in September after he was shot twice in the head, allegedly by a fellow motorist over Labor Day weekend. What unfolded after that? has been a Southern Gothic saga straight out of Faulkner, the ever-sprawling details of which I will leave to you to read about in the New York Times, the Washington Post, People Magazine, or to watch on the morning talk shows or the evening news, or to catch on true crime podcasts, or you get the idea. Alex Murdoch is the story of the season. But for right now, I'm pleased to be speaking with one of his attorneys, Dick Harpootlian. Dick began his legal career as a prosecutor in South Carolina's Fifth Circuit, where he personally prosecuted hundreds of murder cases, including 12 death penalty cases, one of which he went on to defend on appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. He has been active in state politics for decades and has made regular appearances on national news programs for his views on politics and law. I invited him on to May the Record Reflect to share the advocacy techniques that have worked well for him in his 45 years in the courtroom, as well as a few of the war stories in which they came in handy. I start out by asking Dick what made him decide to become a lawyer. Here's his answer and our interview. So I was graduating from college in 1971, and um, I had a really low draft number. So, which meant Yo, this is way before any of y'all were born. So um, what it meant was, and we knew, uh, you know, I was pretty big in the anti-war movement in the late 60s. Um, and we knew at the minimum we were going over uh, to fight in a war that was going to be over relatively soon. Um, so I, was, I didn't want to go to Vietnam. Uh, and my father was a bomber pilot in World War II. I'm patriotic. I would fight in a war that was a war. This was not 
a war with uh, any real uh, um, object other than to fight communism. And as you know, today we are trading partners with uh, Vietnam. So it's really didn't it didn't turn out the way everybody thought it would. But long story short is um, back then you could get a deferment when I applied for law school um, for being in law school. And between the time I applied, uh, uh, took my LSATs and got accepted to law school. Um, and when I was getting ready to go, the deferment was done away with. I went to my um, pre, well, I went to my um, induction physical and found that I had an ulcer. And so I was found unable to serve. But I'd been accepted to law school. I said, what the hey, I'll go. Um, <laughs> didn't really have anything else to do. Um, and I went to law school um, and here at the University of South Carolina. And um, I must tell you, it was not an inspiring experience. Um, it was uh, a lot of very structured, uh, sort of rote memory kinds of things. Um, and I, um, I didn't do very well. I mean, I was not a scholar. I didn't try to get on law review. I didn't really participate much. Um, but I was interested in politics, and I got involved in the campaign of a guy who was running against a 20-year incumbent district attorney, um, and we beat him. Um, and uh, the, the lawyer who became the DA offered me a job, and I said, man, you know, I'm a long-haired, hippie kind, kind of guy. I don't want to be a pig prosecutor. And then he said, look, um, you know, you got a job. I said, yeah, I got a job at Legal Aid. What does it pay? Eight grand a year, which was not bad money in 1974. Um, and he said, well, I'll pay you $11,000. Well, I had student loans. I had no choice. So um, I went to work for him in January 1975. I tried my first case on January 15th, 1975, which was an armed robbery um, and uh, got a conviction. And I got to tell you, that first time I stood in front of a jury, um, I was hooked. I um, began a process that year. I tried almost 60 cases my first year because back then, uh, like a driving under the influence case, you, you do two of those a day. There was no breathalyzer. There was no technical defenses. Police officer said they saw somebody weaving down the road, pulled him over, he bloodshot eyes, smell of alcohol on his breath, fumbled for his license, uh, uh, gave him a sobriety test or whatever, and that was it. Um, there was no scientific, might be one other witness that saw the driving or saw his appearance. Um, but also, um, in the fall of 1975, I tried a death penalty case, uh, my first one, and one of many. Um, and uh, back then, this is before Furman versus Georgia, so I picked the jury on Monday morning at 10. He was sentenced to death at 2 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. I mean, I tried a bunch of cases, and the more I did, the more I liked it. And, the, and, and let me say this to you. I know the audience finds this shocking. I have lost cases, both as a prosecutor I've had not guilties, and as defense lawyer, I've had guilties, and as a plaintiff's lawyer, I've had defense verdicts. I know um, in 45 years of doing this, unlike many of my compatriots, based on what I read, I have lost cases. I, I um, have not been 100%. Whenever I hear a lawyer say, I've never lost a case, it means to me they're not trying cases. If you're trying cases, you're going to lose cases. Now, a prosecutor really shouldn't lose cases because you decide what to prosecute. You decide that you've got proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That sometimes things go south um, uh, in the middle of a trial, but rarely, I've had a couple of those, but rarely you've just made a bad decision about the credibility of a witness or um, 
um, you know, what was circumstantial evidence that they blew a hole in. But but um, so, uh, you know, I did that for eight years until 1983, uh, culminating. I had probably prosecuted about 12 individuals for the death penalty until 11. And then the 12th is a guy named Donald Pee Wee Gaskins. I wanted to ask you about Pee Wee Gaskins. Um, you know, a, a guy with a name like that sounds to me like he's either got to be a baseball player from the 1930s or else someone you'd rather not meet in a dark alley at night. So which is he or or was he? Uh, Don, Donald Gaskins was one of the most intriguing people I ever met um, or prosecuted. By the time I got to him, uh, he had 10 previous convictions for murder. Um, he had been sentenced to death for four of those in the early 70s. Uh, they were commuted to life in, I mean, they, they were reversed. Um, and uh, he was told by the local prosecutor in Florence, which is the eastern near the beach here, I'm in the middle of the state, that if he would confess to all the murders he did, he would get life for all of them. And, and he wouldn't be tried for the death penalty again. Technically, I don't think he could have been tried for the death penalty, but we went ahead and and he's called Pee Wee because he's like four foot nine. He was very, very small. But so he confessed to murdering 10 people, including um, a pregnant woman and her two year old child, um, um, his niece and a friend of hers. Um, and most of them he buried out in the swamp. And he took, yeah. took prosecutors to or cops to where he buried them. Um, every one of them had his rash, his own twisted rationale for, for murder. None of them were done you know, in a robbery or rape, or you know, they were all people that he executed for either um, perceived disloyalty or um, the, the woman and the, and the child former girlfriend who showed up at his doorstep pregnant uh, and child, two-year-old child was obviously the product of a mixed relationship, black and white. Um, and she admitted she was pregnant by a black man. So he just took them around back and they put their legs in the pond. And then he, um, pushed her off into the water and held her down, drowned her, and then she drowned the two-year-old. Then he drowned the two-year-old. I mean, look, in his mind, better dead than be soiled in that way, to be to be a mixed race being touched by an African, I mean, he used much more pejorative words, um, an African-American. So, I mean, he was a racist through and through. In, um, yeah. in, uh, I mean, in 1981, um, Pee Wee was serving 10 life sentences. And he was the ped trustee in a cell block where death, death row was. It was a guy named Tyner um, who had uh, killed two people, a husband and wife named Moon at the beach um, uh, during an armed robbery, shot them both, executed them with a shotgun. They had an adopted son named Tony Simo. Um, Tyner was tried, sentenced to death, reversed based on some comment by the prosecutor, retried, sentenced to death again. Simo got tired of waiting for Tyner, who was an African-American from New York to be executed. So he had a friend hire Pee-wee or arrange with Pee-wee uh, to kill Tyner. Pee-wee befriended Tyner and smuggled marijuana and food into him. And, um, and he laced some of that food with poison that was smuggled in, didn't kill him. We have a tape recording of Pee-wee talking to Simo where he says that, you know, that poison, that, you know, we give it to him, and just he doesn't even get sick. And he says, if you get me a stick of dynamite, as he would say, a blasting cap, he said, there won't be no coming back from that. Simo says on the recording, I can't get you dynamite, but I can get you some C4, plastic explosive. And he smuggles in a, a blasting cap, quarter pound of C4, um, and creates a bomb out of a cup, 
which he, and, and since he was the building man, he repaired all the plumbing, all the electricity. He melted a hole in the bottom of the cup. It was unbreakable prison cup, put a female plug in, um, put nuts, put the, bla the blasting cap attached to it, nuts and the, and the C4 nuts, bolts, nails, anything sharp piece of metal, glued a speaker on top of it, um, and uh, ran a wire from his cell through a vent where he had access to all the plumbing area into Tyner's cell, told him he was tired of him yelling when he wanted something. This was an intercom. So Tyner held it up to his ear. Pee Wee said, can you hear me? He said no. And then he plugged his end into the 110 and blew Tyner's head off. Um, witnesses, uh, a witness saw him pulling the wire back through, cutting it up after the explosion. Um, Tyner lived for about 20 minutes, but um, originally it was when I got a call in, in the DA's office, was thought that Tyner tried to blow his way out of death row with either maybe a match head bomb. FBI came in, turns out to be C4, plot thickens. Um, a guy named Al Waters gets P, here's his P, we gets him out of his cell. There's 60 tapes, uh, little cassette tapes. He taped conversations with his wife, conversations with friends uh, on, on the telephone, put a suction cup on it and 60, 60 hours of it. And there's about 15 minutes in that 60 hours where he's talking to Simo twice about getting him stuff to kill uh, kill uh, Tyner. And the last thing he says to, uh, to Simo is just uh, sit back and listen for the boom. And so um, he blows Tyner's head off. Um, and uh, it was investigated, like I say, by game. Al Waters cleared the case. So we had tape recording. We had eyewitnesses that had him delivering or having somebody deliver the bomb. We have eyewitness him pulling the wire through. Um, now, <clears throat> Some of that is circumstantial evidence. And in the typical death penalty case, you don't never want to try a death penalty case based on circumstantial evidence because a jury wants to be absolutely certain before they execute somebody. The longest part of that trial took almost four and a half weeks to get a jury because the questions would go like this. Mr. Jury, have you ever heard of Donald P. Wee Gaskins? Yeah. What do you know about him? Oh, he's the largest mass murderer in the history of the state. Well, could you disregard that? and base your verdict in this case on the facts and evidence you hear in this case. No, no, we went through 400 and something jurors. Um, and if you got past that, yeah, I could be fair. I could, I could be, the, the next question would be, well, would you consider knowing what you know, um, giving him life or would you automatically give him death? Um, and um, yeah, I tell you, it took a while to get 14 of them because everybody, um, just said, well, if this is murder number 11, he needs to go. So, um, and we tried him and he was convicted. And I would then went into private practice with a guy named Jack Swirling, who defended Pee Wee. We went to Clemson together uh, and we opened a practice about three months after that. I was tired of prosecuting. He was tired of working for a lawyer in town. Uh, and then we did pretty much nothing but criminal cases for the next eight years. Def I defended a death, two death penalty cases with Jack. One was executed, one was not. And by the way, later on, I ran for DA and I was elected DA here. And within six months of being elected DA, Pee Wee was scheduled to be executed. Um, and he met with his son and tried to get his son to kidnap my four-year-old daughter and hold her hostage to get him free before he was executed. Uh, unfortunately for the kid, he talked to a friend of his, or fortunately for me, he talked to a friend of his who talked to a local sheriff and they arrested a young Donnie and um, held, we lived with uh, machine gun carrying agents, my four-year-old daughter, my wife, and I for about two weeks until they executed Pee Wee. That's just incredible. It, it was incredible. And you can't make this stuff up. So what was he like? How did he behave? He was 
charming. He was uh, not, I'm not talking about men's are smart. I'm talking about cunning. I'm talking about always seeing the angles and trying to work people. My most memorable encounter with him during that period of time, I'm sitting there making notes for the next witness or whatever, and Pee Wee's sitting over there having a Coca-Cola and his lawyer's gone somewhere and all the judges off the bench, just me and him and maybe a couple other people. And he talked in a real high voice like this. He said, Dick, Dick, you know, you're a lot like me. I said, what? What are you talking about, Pee Wee? He said, you like killing. And I said, no, 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 Pee Wee, I don't. I, 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 um, I don't like killing. I'm doing my job and my job is to see that justice is done. He said, justice? He said, you know what we say in the pen about justice? Your, your view or perspective, he didn't say, your view on justice is like a hard, I'm going to clean this up, penis, okay? And I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, your view of it depends on whether you're giving it or getting it. Now, that is a, a philosophy uh, to live by on death row in the Department of Corrections. I mean, think about it. I mean, this guy, uh, and of course, ultimately he was uh, put to death in the electric chair. But... Um, he was a killing machine, and everything to him was black and white, literally. Black people were bad. White people were good. Um, and, of course, uh, in preparing, I found, for the case, I found he was first was sentenced at 12 years old to hitting a next-door neighbor's girl, a young girl in the head with an axe. He spent time in the Florence School for White Boys, the reformatory. He cut off the finger of another little boy that escaped with him one night and tried to get him to go back. I mean, this is at age 12. 12 sociopath almost from the egg it sounds like from from born that way i mean and and the superintendent wrote i still have the letter wrote um you know all, all he done he said uh and the last thing he says is this young man will murder somebody one day um the only thing he was wrong about was it wasn't somebody it was at least 11 uh somebody so so unreal i read that he claimed he killed over 100 people do you think he was lying Oh, absolutely. Yes. Now, he he remember that book was published after he was executed um, and uh, he would he claimed murders he could not have done. Um, he was very proud of the fact that he was the biggest in the state, that he was the largest mass murderer. And he just I mean, his book was all about promoting Pee Wee Gaskins, not about truth. Now, having said that, maybe he murdered some other people, but not 100 and not anywhere near that amount. Oh, OK. He was padding his resume. Yes, he 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 was. I mean, he's a um, was a the most voracious killer I've ever met, and not a serial killer, not somebody that had a, you know a thing for blind girls or or you know or or little boys or or you know some particular genre, if you will. He just mm-hmm. he liked to kill. If he you know if he came home one night, he had a, a niece and a little girl that were when I say little girl, they were sixteen or seventeen. Ran away from home, got on drugs. Showed up on his doorstep. He got him off of drugs um, until he came home one night. And they were both drugged up again. He beat both of them to death. He, mar- he buried his niece in the family plot. Of course, no headstone. The other girl he like threw in the swamp. He found out who sold him the drugs. A woman, um, I can't remember her name, invited her over for Coca-Cola, put battery acid in the Coca-Cola. And while she's choking to death, he kicks her head in. Well, for a guy named Pee Wee, he really was a terribly brutal, terrible human being. And the stories of your interactions with him are both chilling and fascinating. 
But I'd like to step back a little bit from talking about those being prosecuted in the courtroom and in Pee Wee's case, rightfully so, to what it actually takes for a trial lawyer to get that job done. In other words, some trial tips. I know you've said that it's important for you to choose, at least as best you can, jurors who can relate not only to your client's profile, but to your own as well. Can you explain why that is so important? Sure. I mean, I don't know if you've read the the book, The Last Trial of Abraham Lincoln by Dan Abrams. Have you read that book? It's a wonderful book. Well, Abraham Lincoln defended 27 murder cases, one of them in 1859, the year before he ran for president, and it got national press. And it wasn't much of a murder. It was two guys got argument in a bar and one of them stabbed the other one to death. But um, for some reason, it got national and even international. Um, And what Lincoln, when you read some of the things he said, is it's not just about your client, it's how does the jury react to you? And so your persona, um, your uh, uh, relationship with them, which um, you can establish a number of different ways, the easiest way is to see if they'll look you in the eye. If they won't look you in the eye when they're getting picked, they're not gonna look you in the eye when you address the jury. I mean, one of the things in South Carolina, you can, you can what I call work the jury rail. You can examine witnesses while you're speaking to, I mean, you're, as you're speaking to them, you're looking at the jury to see what kind of reaction you're there. I mean, they should be watching the witness, which they do, but you're watching them to see how they react to the witness. And you're also watching how they react to you. Uh, it's very important. I mean, um, you need to adopt a persona for the case that you believe the jury um, will, um, will, um, Appreciate. Let me give you an example. This was not a criminal case; it was a civil case up in Greenville, a bad faith case against a big insurance company that we didn't pay off on a on a uh, arson, alleged arson um, of a uh, printing plant. Um, they brought in a guy from Houston who had never lost a case, is what he told us, um, to, in bad faith uh, insurance cases. Very well quaffed. Um, you know, one of those guys. It's always what do they call it when you pull your your um, cuffs, shooting your cuffs. Um, great shape, perfect tan. He had a cadre of assistants um, and he had PowerPoint where, I mean, he could like, remember now in federal court, especially every juror has their own screen in front of them. There's a big screen, but on the back of the second row jurors, they're looking at a screen and so are the front row. So um, he relied heavily on PowerPoint and um, it was not very, he was very methodical, um, but not got no pizzazz going with the jury. Never actually looked at them. And they, by the way, when they're looking at the back of the seat in front of them, they're not looking at you. They're not looking at you. So I use, and I still use, big pieces of poster board. This sounds like the Stone Age, I'm sure, to your uh, folks out there. Now, if you've got a, you know, 5,000 documents you want to review, that's fine. But you're going to put the jury down. You're going to put them to sleep. You do a poster board um, with you know, the key quotes from the key documents and you walk back and forth in front of the jury rail, pointing it out and they're looking at you and they're looking at the, at the poster board. I mean, my persona in front of that jury was sort of a, I'm more like you than him. You know, they're from Greenville. They're, they're, uh, I went to Clemson. They're, they're much more um, conservative than they would be perhaps down in Charleston, but uh, they're common sense people and they're going to read 
um, me and the other guy. And then they're going to listen. I mean, and the, that's the context for what they hear. You've got to work the jury. If you forget there's a jury there, you're going to lose. And many lawyers forget there's a jury. And secondly, what do you look like? What do you, how do you react? Do you look, do you get eye contact? Do you, do you, um, you know, and you can misread that eye contact. One of my favorite stories is very early in my career, I was trying to driving under the influence case. And um, these were six person juries, uh, not 12. And there were two sort of, I say middle-aged, 50, 50 year old white women um, looked like Auntie M sitting on the front row. And um, as uh, I was making my final argument, they were smiling at me. I said, oh God, I got this thing in the bag. About five minutes, not guilty. And so, and at this at this point in my career, I didn't hesitate to go see jurors and say, you know, what what was the problem? You were smiling at me. So we were smiling at you because your your zipper was undone and your underwear was hanging out. Okay. So I developed this nervous tick. Um, I've had now for forty years. When I get up to argue a jury, the last thing I do is check my zipper. Um, it's a <laughs> well, that's a trial tip right there. Check your fly before you get up, <laughs> gentlemen. Um, but um, no, it's it's a, and you got to own the courtroom. You got you've got to fill the courtroom with your personality. You have got to make sure. And by the way, you go in the courtroom with a good lawyer. They're not going to let you do that. They're not going to let you dominate. They're not going to let you uh, um, um, fill the courtroom. If you, is the way I put it, um, you know. Um, in opening statements in a criminal case, especially, I I do what I call the kidney punch, which is interrupt. I mean, if it's objectionable, um, you know, if the if the prosecution misstates the fact, objection, Your Honor, uh, you know, Ms. Jones is 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 not telling the jury the truth, and you know, many lawyers can't recover from that. They you know they've got this opening statement, hence the kidney punch. That's the kidney punch because you're behind them, and it's it, I mean it's it startles them. And they can't, many of them just sit down. Okay, thank you. Okay, so that's the kidney punch. And as long as the objection's legitimate, uh, it's, it's fair game. It's, um, there's no, uh, no flags, no uh, fouls. So you, I know that you do have a reputation for owning the courtroom the, the second you walk in. Does that just come naturally to you? Do you think that you were born that way? Or have you picked up tips along the way? Well, I think, you know, I've been lucky to be around some really good lawyers um, uh, and watch how they do things. It, it's what um, I learned reading a book about sort of the Japanese Bushado um, or whatever, however it's pronounced, their, their code of conduct. Accept your death. Accept the fact you can lose. If this is about your ego, you shouldn't be doing it. If this is about, you know, I got to, it's a, I got to have a win, don't do it. This isn't about winning and losing. This isn't about you. This is about doing your job, having a strategy, executing on the strategy, throwing the meat out and see if they go for it. And it's been very successful for me. When I say own the courtroom, I mean the confidence to accept the fact you can lose. I mean, most of the lawyers I go up against are frantic to not lose, frantic. And as a result, it's very easy to distract them, to get them off their game. My point is this. If you, like people that write out their opening and closing statements, you got, you got to become the case. You got to know the case well enough. You may make a couple of notes, but anybody that reads or memorizes a closing or opening statement, 
doesn't know the case. They're not the case. You got to become the case. And if you've got it memorized, then you're not going to respond very well when um, counselor gives you the kidney punch. That's right. When the kidney punch comes, you're going to just go, you know, and you're going to, oh, your paper. I mean, it's, I've seen it too many times. You've had a, a lot of high profile cases, including the current one on your docket, which is the um, Alex Murdoch case. How do you manage? You've got your case, you've got your client that you've got to manage, but then there's this whole other layer of it, which is managing the media and dealing with the court of public opinion. So can you talk a little bit about how to manage the media when you've got a case like this? Well, I think the first thing you've got to realize is you have an ethical duty to, to not say certain things, although many of the lawyers on the civil side of this case have forgotten that ethical duty. Um, so uh, in, when I was a DA, I didn't say anything about cases. I mean, I think you're restricted by the code of professional responsibility to say, charged with this, uh, you know, and any other relevant charges. And then you're required to say, I remind uh, the public that Mr. Jones is presumed innocent until and if he's proven guilty in a court of law. You've got to remind every of the presumption of innocence. So I took that very seriously as a prosecutor. Also take it very seriously as a defense attorney. I don't, I mean, now that Alex Murdoch has been charged with crimes, we're very, very limited as to what we can say. And I, I did an interview on the Today Show and went on Good Morning America and went on a local Fox station. That's it. Um, we have not talked to uh, Jim Griffin, my co-counsel, and I haven't talked to any anybody else extensively, although we've had offers, trust me, over and over and over. So, uh, I mean, uh, there had been a number of statements made by a number of press uh, people, both on TV and in written press, that Alex Murdoch didn't show any signs of being shot in the head um, during the, uh, you know, the attempted suicide where he had somebody shoot him in the head. So we got the medical records and it showed he had an entrance wound, exit wound, fractured skull, brain bleed in ICU for, um, for two days. Uh, we felt we should release that to put that misinformation to rest. Right. So that then that the the lies don't become the story themselves. Right. Right. So, I mean, and there's a whole bunch of lies out there, most of it driven by the civil lawyers. I mean, the prosecutor hadn't said anything. Interesting. Um, it's, it's all by the civil lawyers trying to denigrate him for advantage in the civil courtroom, which I think will not pay off. But um, we've I mean, I've turned down. You know, you name it, I've turned it down. I'll bet. And um, so is Jim. Um, we're not in the business of, I mean, we need to, we need to deal with these criminal charges in court. Right. Not, not in People Magazine. Yeah, you know, People Magazine reported that Maggie had, was seeing a domestic lawyer at the time. And who's Maggie? Um, Maggie's, uh, Alex's wife was murdered along with Paul, the son. Uh, I represented back in June. Paul, the son. Right. I represented Paul on the, uh, Reckless homicide or uh, felony DUI boating under the influence case uh, when a young girl was killed and he was allegedly impaired when he was driving the boat. That was how I got into this case. And then, of course, Paul and his mother, Maggie, were murdered on June 6th of this year, 7th of this year, um, uh, by somebody who shot him with a shotgun and shot her with a semi automatic um, rifle. So, um, uh, you know, we're not commenting on that. We're not commenting on the current charges. Uh, Alec needs rehab. He had a horrible oxy, um, is what I've said in the courtroom. I'm not speaking out of school. Horrible uh, oxy uh, uh, opioid addiction. 
Uh, he's been in detox now. He's been in rehab. He's in jail. We're hoping the judge will let him go back uh, to uh, rehab. So do you have a crisis communications team? It kind of sounds like you're managing all of the communications yourself just because of what you've said about um, the ethics. Well, we have a, a we have a woman who was working for the Murdoch family uh, communications before he was charged after Maggie and Paul's murders. And she's been giving us some help since then. Um, but I don't have a crisis management team. Um, Maybe we should. Maybe we should. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and so you are tracking the traditional news reporting and social media just so that you can um, craft your narrative if you have to. You know, not social. Not, not, you know, I, I don't track social media, Twitter or any of that. I just don't. I mean, that's um, as Donald Trump would say, fake news. I mean, anybody can say anything on Twitter or in social media, their theory about who did what. Or, I mean, it's a waste of time. I, I stick with, you know, the newspapers and television stations that I know the general public will see. You can say anything you want on social media, um, and they do. So I don't I don't read it. Um, I do have a Twitter account uh, that I use for my Senate uh, uh, job, but I haven't put anything on it recently because I don't want to engender um, comments back. People, by the way, people, <laughs> it's amazing to me in this country, people still resent the lawyer. You know, I said, Abraham Lincoln did 27 murder defense cases and then was elected president within 12 months of finishing the last one, getting an acquittal. I recommend that Dan Abrams book. It's very, very good. All right. I will include a link in the show notes to that book. You have said that when you take an expert deposition, it's over in like five minutes. About a minute 45. And a, can you explain why you do that? And B, are the are the experts ever surprised when you're like, okay, thanks, bye, after just a couple of minutes? Well, they're always surprised. Look, if you litigate to go to trial right. on the civil side, I take every case assuming we're going to try it. I don't take a case to leverage it into a settlement. Now, they, many of them settle. But oftentimes, not until we're looking at the uh, at the courthouse. So right, that's what we teach here. You've got to be prepared to go to trial, no matter what. Right. You don't take you don't take the case to settle it. You take it to try it. So they have an expert in federal court. You don't have to do this in state court, but in federal court, they have to give you a report. Mm -hmm. That's right? right. Shows his qualifications. Shows what his opinions are. Shows what he relied on. And so I assume I'm going to have to cross examine him in a courtroom. Why would I educate him, you know, six months before the trial and ask him all the questions he can get the answers for about, you know, the questions you're going to try to, you know, hang him up with during trial? So I bring, you know, I put him on the stand or not, I take the deposition and say, you know, are these your qualifications? Yes. Is this what you relied on? Yes. Are these your opinions? Yes. Um, do you have any other opinions? No. If you get more opinions, will you let me know? Yes. Thank you. Minute and 45 seconds. Over and done. All right. Over and done. And, and again, you're going to hear my questions the same time the jury does. Interesting. It's a good tip. You spent a lot of time in front of juries and uh, television audiences recently. Do you ever still get nervous? No. Now, sometimes I overreact on television, not in a courtroom. Never get angry in a courtroom. Never get upset in a courtroom. You can appear angry, you can appear upset, but it better be an appearance, something, a calculated 
appearance to get you something. So if you're actually legitimately angry, how do you reel that back in? You take a deep breath and don't let them see it. And um, uh, I mean, I've learned this at a very young age that, you, you know, you can't, if you show anger, they're going to know. And by the way, if somebody shows me anger, I got their number. Okay. Here comes the kidney punch. And here comes the kidney punch. Here comes the, um, you know, the objection while they're doing a witness. Your Honor, if, if the prosecutor wants to testify, uh, they can take the stand, but they can't lead the witness. They can't say, isn't it true, X. Right. What books are you reading for pleasure right now? Well, um, I told you, uh, uh, I just finished Dan Abrams' uh, The Last Trial of Lincoln, which is fascinating because it's the first case in which there was a, a, a new science developed by a guy called stenography. So it's a verbatim, first time that they had a verbatim transcript of the trial of the thing in, in American history. And two, um, self-defense was, was not really a developed principle of law, and, that's, and Lincoln developed it in that case. And, and, and so um, it's fascinating to watch how different, but also how much alike what he did in, in uh, 1859 as to what we do today. And there's a lot of lessons in that book. Um, so I'd recommend it highly. Is there a TV show you've been binging on lately while we're all in lockdown? Mayor of Easttown. Um, and let me say this, there's a bunch of them while we're in lockdown. Fargo, the TV series, the first one with Billy Bob Thornton, extraordinary. Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton, extraordinary. Someone's a Billy Bob fan? I'm a huge Billy Bob fan. And I think, um, you know, he's, he's just hard to beat. That villain he plays in Fargo, and the whole Fargo series has got some, I mean, every season's a different uh, villain, uh, Chris Rock in the last season was the, the gang leader. Um, I mean, there's some just extraordinary, uh, TV and movies out there. There's also some really bad stuff out there. Okay. So since we've been talking about TV, let me ask you something. Ever since the Murdoch case broke just after Labor Day, I've heard a lot of people say things like, Ooh, I can't wait to watch this on Netflix in a couple of years. Now, I am not actually one of those ghoulish people, but on their behalf, let me ask you, who would you want to play you on Netflix? Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, <laughs> I mean is there a choice? Billy Bob, play me. Um, you know, Netflix is called, HBO is called. Um, the, the woman who did the, um, the, the uh, making of a murderer um, uh, documentary is called. Um, a, no, a number of other lesser-known documentary producers, and they all want the story. And what I say to them is, I don't know what the story is. There's no beginning. There's no ending. We're sort of in the middle somewhere. And it, I mean, it, it's, what is the story? You know, uh, rich, powerful family, you know, goes down the tubes. I mean, I, you know, is that something you want to watch? Not me. I mean, is it Ozark? Is it Fargo is it? I mean, I don't know what it is, and I'm in the middle of it, and I don't know what it is. So, um, it's not right for. I mean, I had a big time movie producer call me um, and wanted to buy the movie rights to what? To what? Yeah. So, um, you know, we're not interested in. Um, you know, my job is to defend Alec Murdoch on the criminal charges he's facing and any others that come up. It's not to be his agent to market his story. 
and I've, I'm not marketing my, I mean, I'm not going to market a story. I don't have a story. You know, I'm just, and if I had a story, I'd have to have his permission to tell it because it'd be attorney client. Well, you've been a really good sport talking to us today about all of this stuff. Well, and I appreciate you having me on. I mean, the one thing I want to say in closing is I see a whole bunch of kids, when I say kids, people under 40, that could have extraordinary careers as trial lawyers, but they don't get the opportunity. They don't, I mean, you don't get the case to go try or they offer you such a great deal or a deal um, on the criminal side. The civil side's a little bit easier, but no, I mean, mediation forces you into trying to settle the case. If I were starting out today and I had enough of a cash flow, I would go to the mattress court and volunteer to represent people that say, I want a trial, but I can't afford a lawyer. Just volunteer to take the case, but give them a trial. Say, I'm not taking this to work out a plea. I'm never going to talk about a plea. We're going to pick a jury and we're going to go to trial. If you want somebody to plead, plead guilty, I'm not your guy. And go try. I mean, Magic Court is a six-person jury. Nobody's going to get more than 30 days or $200. But it's a jury. It's a witness. It's, you get to do cross. You get to do direct. You get to argue to a jury. I mean, if I have any secret, it was that first, that first year trying 60 cases. It got to where... Once you're doing it that much, then you can innovate. You can come up with a persona. You can figure out, does this work, not work? How do I, how do I react to this witness? You know, how, how did that go over? Uh, I lost. Well, I mean, it may have been you lost because the facts weren't there, but it may have been the loss because you asked a stupid question or looked stupid or asked one question too many. Um, I mean, one of my cardinal rules is never call a witness unless you absolutely have to. Just don't call people because you feel like you got to throw up a bunch of people. Um, and don't be afraid not to put your client on the stand um, unless you absolutely have to. I've had many, many, many defendants acquitted who didn't testify. It's it's if if the jury buys the law. And they sh I mean, if your argument's good enough. You should win. And and the only way you get good at it is to do it. All right. That's excellent advice. Well, Dick, thanks so much for taking time out of the mayhem to talk to Anita. We wish you good luck with all of that, and we will see you around the boob tube. Around the boob tube. Yeah, well, and thank you. I think you all do a great job of, of, of trying to prep people on the context in which to do things. Your ability to do it or not do it is when you go do it. Um, Mao Zedong once said, to know the peach, one must bite it. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. And quoting Mao is probably not politically correct. <laughs> well, then I think we should probably end it right there, huh? I think so. Well, I'm start quoting Trotsky here in a minute. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so that is a wrap. I'd like to extend Dick Harputlian a very warm thank you for making time in what must be a rather jam-packed schedule. He mentioned a few interesting things you may wish to check out, like the Dan Abrams book on Lincoln, so do take a look at the show notes for more details. We've also tagged Billy Bob Thornton on Instagram and Twitter with this episode, so who knows? Maybe we can make this whole Netflix thing happen for Dick after all. I mean, if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. Anyway, I hope you'll be back for our next episode in December which will be our first annual wrap-up of the best trial advocacy tips we heard this year here on the podcast. 
should be fun. I'll catch you then. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.